0: Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you
1: Mm. Hello everyone and welcome back to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Hi! I almost forgot my own podcast tagline. That's because it's been ages. It's been over a year since I've done a full official episode of this podcast. And oh my gosh, I missed you guys. I'm trying not to scream, so I'm whispering to show the intensity of my emotion. I'm actually hugging my mic stand right now. I miss you guys. You're the best listeners ever. I missed your crazy hair and your sweet comments and your pictures of dogs and cats and your good kind of broad energy. Um, And I'm just happy to be back. I, I, I wasn't sure if I would ever be able to come back to this podcast, but it felt right. I've really found myself missing being able to tell stories in this way. So, ahem, here I am, new year, new me, old podcast, but revamped. So, um, if you're a new listener or an old listener who's completely forgotten your dear, beloved Tori, let me tell you who I am. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm the host of this podcast, duh, but I'm also a true crime writer. I have a book called Lady Killers, and I have a new book that's coming out February 23rd. It's called Confident Women swindlers grifters and shapeshifters of the feminine persuasion it's about con women real con women i'll talk much more about it later maybe do an episode on one of them but you can pre-order it now if you're intrigued i'm, I'm gonna put the link in my show notes uh what else oh since we last spoke i have also cl- clambered aboard a new po- another podcast it's called Red Flags. It's by Investigation Discovery. And it's me and a co- my co-host, Karina Michelle, who is amazing. And we are a true crime podcast. Yes, I know there are 10 zillion. Um, but our thing is we do like an intro section on like the buzzy true crime news of the day. And then we do a deep dive, not always even into a case, but sometimes like a issue or a area of crime um, and then we do a call to action at the end to help you, like, know what to do with all your jittery true crime energy. So red flags, you can find it on any podcast app. What else? I am also a mother, as you all know, if you were here with me a year ago, I'm a mother to a very cute one-year-old boy named Cecil, who is a really fast crawler. He's really into playgrounds. Um, And his current favorite toys are our vacuum cleaner, uh, his dad's toothbrush, and this fan, like a white table fan that we unplug and let him play with every single day. And he takes it apart. Um, Okay. (sighs) Can I do a little bit of housekeeping right now? I know you're... (sighs) Probably a new listener screaming at me saying, get into the story. And uh, I'm only doing a long intro now because it's been so long. And, you know, me and my listeners have so much to catch up on. So, okay, a little bit of housekeeping. Podcast is the same, right? Same Tory, but 2021 version. I'm still going to be doing crime fighting broads. I am, however, going to make some improvements, but I don't even want to say what those are because I don't want to overcommit. But like, let's just say I think the episodes are going to come out a little bit more frequently but don't tell anyone I told you that. Um, I'm relaunching my Patreon and I know this makes me like your weird relative who shows up on your doorstep after a year and you haven't seen them and they're just like, I need money. (laughs) Um, So I don't mean to channel that energy too hard, but I am relaunching my Patreon. So patreon.com slash criminal broads if you want to, you know, give to your weird relative Tori. I'm thinking of just making all the tiers $3. Does that sound like a good idea or should I keep different tiers at different levels I just feel like three dollars a month is easy it's like a cup of coffee you don't have to think about it you don't have to feel weird about like having higher options that you're not doing I don't know someone tell me if you think that's a good idea um and then you know I'll tell you all the relevant links and social media and stuff after the show Housekeeping is endless in podcasts as in real life, and I could talk about it all day, but let's get to the story. So today we're going to talk about uh, a woman named Juana Barasa, and she was a semi-frequent reader request back in the day, so I hope some of you are, your ears are perking up right now. This story mostly takes place in Mexico City in the early 2000s. And I've got a guest of honor on the podcast. So you're going to hear the voice of Susana Vargas Cervantes, who is an academic with a very compelling take on this woman and sort of how her image and her crimes fit into Mexico's sense of itself and how the amount of focus on her case teaches us some uncomfortable lessons about which sort of victims draw focus and resources. Her book, which was my main source for this podcast, is called The Little Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer. And it is available from NYU Press, and you can obviously find a link to it in the show notes, as well as links to all my other sources, as always. Last but not least, I wanted to warn you that there are some brief descriptions of sexual assault in this episode. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get into the story. Support for this podcast comes from W.W. W. Norton, the independent and employee-owned publisher of Nobody's Normal. Here on Criminal Broads, we talk about cases that involve mental health all the time. And if you're interested in learning more about what mental health is, is and how it's been seen by society, this is the book for you. For centuries, scientists and society cast moral judgments on anyone deemed mentally ill. In the book Nobody's Normal, anthropologist Roy Richard Grinker chronicles the progress and setbacks in the struggle against mental illness stigma from the 18th century through America's major wars and into today's high-tech economy. He takes readers on an international journey to discover the origins of and variances in our cultural response to neurodiversity. Nobody's Normal offers a path to end stigma, and it is available wherever books are sold. 2005. At a symposium on crime in Mexico City, a man from the Department of Justice stands up to give a talk. What he has to say is horrifying. He announces that Mexico is now experiencing quote, a terrifying and new phenomenon, the presence, now indisputable, of a serial killer. That which happens to us today didn't happen to us before. Happened in movies in the United States, However, violence and crime have also become globalized. The serial killer of elderly women, El Mataviejitas, Viejitas, is an example of this. El Mata Viejitas, the killer of old ladies. You could tell from the nickname, from the El in El Mataviejitas, Viejitas, that the police were looking for a man. They were looking for a man because, well... Who else could commit crimes like these? Someone was killing elderly women in brutal fashion around the city, leaving them dead on the floor, strangled by things like stethoscopes, or phone cables, or women's tights. Sure, witnesses were claiming that they'd seen a woman, a tall woman, around the scenes of some of these crimes, but authorities would not be shaken from their belief. The killer was a man. Maybe a man who dressed in women's clothes, but a man nonetheless. El mate
0: viejitas. My name is Susana Vargas Cervantes, and I am a teacher and a writer and a researcher. I currently am an assistant professor at Media and Communication Studies in the University of Carleton.
1: Susana Vargas Cervantes has been studying the case of the killer initially known as El Mate Viejitas for over a decade. One of the things she noticed was that Mexican police had kind of imported their idea of what a serial killer looked and acted like from their neighbor to the north, from the United States, land of the celebrity serial killer.
0: United States has positioned itself through the FBI and through many different neuropsychologists Mm -hmm. as the leading research on serial killers as a species. And this has been intertwined with a lot of fiction and all the movies and all the cream um, CSIs that Mm -hmm. featured serial killers. So there are always a male, middle-aged, who is brilliant, who is white. Mm -hmm. And it might well be the case that Most of serial killers in the United States follow that profile, but that we will never know because those are the ones that they've looked after and they've caught.
1: So when police in Mexico City finally started thinking that all of these killings of elderly women might be connected, they started looking for someone, well, someone like Ted Bundy, someone charismatic, brilliant, psychopathic, and definitely male. Back in the 1960s, before the killings of Old Woman and before the Symposium on Crime, a 13-year-old girl was being sold to an older man. The girl's name was Juana Barraza. Her mother, Justa Samperio, was an alcoholic who beat her daughter at every turn. Juana grew up in poverty, north of Mexico City, and had never learned to read or write much, and didn't know her biological father. But the main source of trauma in her life, it seems, was her mother. Justa would have done anything for a drink. Anything. And so when Juana was 13 years old, her mother sold her to a man named Jose Lugo in exchange for, some say, three beers. The exchange was so cruel that Juana thought that the whole thing was somehow not real a joke, or a misunderstanding, or a a setup. Jose Lugo took her back to his house, and she waited for her mother, or her stepfather, who she trusted, to come and save her, but no one showed up. No one showed up when Jose Lugo tied her to his bed. No one came to save her for the next five years when Lugo raped her over and over, when she had an abortion or when she gave birth to a son. After those five years, her uncles finally found her and rescued her, because as it turned out, Juana's mother had been lying to the rest of the family this entire time, saying that Juana had just left with her rapist of her own free will. Years later, Juana would weep on camera under arrest as she said, that is why I hated older women. The killings started in 1998. Elderly women were being found dead in their own homes, strangled or bludgeoned. The killings always happened during the daytime, and they seemed eerily similar. Here's how the New York Times described them. The killer always followed the same pattern, getting into the homes of elderly women who lived alone either after offering to carry in groceries or knocking on the door and pretending to be a social worker. Analyses of the crime scenes suggested that the killer strangled the victims from behind with articles of their own clothing or other effects from their homes. The bodies were left on a chair or a bed. The killer then often rifled the house and stole something small, often a religious statue. But it took five years of these similar crimes before Mexico City's Department of Justice started recognizing the possibility that a serial killer might be at work. And it took another two years before the chief of police actually declared that there was a serial killer on the loose. It was hard to conceptualize this sort of American-seeming crime as happening in Mexico City. There were other repetitive serial murders in the country, the violence of the narcos, the many unsolved femicides, but these killings of elderly women triggered a very different response from the authorities. This was the first time in Mexico that someone had been declared a serial killer before they were captured. An entire task force was assigned to the case, and police staked out the city in plain clothes. At first, police were looking for a male serial killer pretending to be a female nurse. Mexico City had, has, a government program called CIVALE that gave financial help to elderly citizens, and police thought that this killer was using fake CIVALE credentials to lure his way into these vulnerable homes. Police floated a theory that their killer was a middle-aged gay man who lived around women and who had been abused as a child. This profile didn't come out of nowhere. A serial killer just like that had been arrested in France in the 1980s. His name was Thierry Pula, the monster of Montmartre, and he killed many elderly women. Local police figured that if it could happen in France, it could happen in Mexico. And in fact, Mexico City police actually brought over a team of French police to help them figure out how to find this sort of serial killer. The French police outlined three different types of serial killers and brought over a manual on how to arrest them, But the whole project ran into some difficulty when French police insisted on the importance of DNA, which the police in Mexico City did not unfortunately have from these crime scenes. Still, the Mexico City police continued pouring tremendous amounts of resources into the hunt. They made 64 sketches of the killer and plastered them around the city. They distributed pamphlets to elderly citizens, begging them not to trust a single stranger, The task force to find the killer was called Parques y Jardines, or Parks and Gardens, since police suspected the killer of approaching elderly women in those places. By the end of 2005, 49 elderly women had been murdered, and the police in Mexico City were feeling great pressure to arrest someone.
0: So they started rounding people up. They were looking first for a man, Mm -hmm. following international narratives on serial killing, then when witnesses kept on insisting it was someone who was very tall but with a wig and had makeup and that she was a woman, police could not imagine a woman. So they immediately full of prejudices and also following international accounts of serial killing that many times put them with uh, homosexuals or transvestites as uh, an equation of uh, sex uh, sexual failure they went after transvestite sex workers in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And after none of them matched their fingerprints, then the uh, chief police officer continued to insist that if he was not a transvestite, he was sure it was a transgender person. The search for El Mate viajitas was
1: intense. But again... There were other crimes happening in Mexico, crimes that didn't create anywhere near this sort of public outcry and crimes that certainly didn't get 64 police sketches and special emissaries from France and an entire task force
0: assigned to them. For the very first time in Mexico City and in the whole Mexico, there had been a search with a name for a specific killer because that had not happened with any other type of victim. Not when they're transvestites, when they're homosexual, when they're younger women. Even though there's a modus operandi, even though there's many of them dying under similar conditions, they have never had had a search for a serial killer. Mm -hmm. This was the very first time. And that is what caught my attention. For example,
1: in the city of Juarez, there had been hundreds, hundreds of women killed. Some raped, tortured, mutilated. Mostly young brown women, often accused of living risky lifestyles. All the
0: narratives and, and discourses of news reports of criminologists for victims of feminicides is that they were out alone at night. They didn't dress properly. They were not, this is, I'm quoting the governor of Chihuahua, a province in Mexico where, um, a state in Mexico where most of the feminicides had believed to, had happened before they were discovered in Estado de Mexico, so where Ciudad Juarez is. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, women were not exactly coming back from mass when they were killed. Mm. So, this is still lets you know that it is what they are thinking, and what they're thinking is based on ideologies of Mexicanidad, which have determined who is a good woman and who is not a good woman, that has determined largely who counts as a victim and who doesn't count as a victim in mm. Mexico. So, elderly women counted as a victim, victims because they were sex, desexualized, they were the grandmothers of the nation, they were grandmothers. And they were vulnerable because they lived alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for them, we can have a search and a task for, for a serial killer. But for all the women victim of feminicides, we cannot because that is not totally their responsibility because they were out drinking.
1: One of the reasons for the outcry about El Mate Viejitas was that the killer's victims represented something about society at large that society at large didn't like. If elderly women lived alone, making them vulnerable to murder, that must mean that these women had been abandoned by their families, which must mean that family values across the country were deteriorating. The assumption from authorities was that these victims were so desperately lonely that they would talk to anyone, even a serial killer. This felt more urgent, more upsetting than the killings of young women who were presumed to be reckless and morally loose.
0: They could not conceive of a woman that was 65, that was not a grandmother, and that chose to live alone. Hmm. So what made her vulnerable is that she was alone in her house. So when anyone knocked on her door, because of her motherly instincts... And because of her mothering, that was a different need that the, of the serial killer. She could not contain herself. So she had to invite anyone for a cup of tea. Okay. So the actual prevention for the little old lady killer was do not trust anyone and do not let them into your house. Do not offer a cup of tea or cookies. So they were only thinking of women in this very traditional role so if you are a grandmother you've been abandoned by society this means we have failed you because i will we can never think of you choosing to live alone this means that you're vulnerable because your family and society abandoned you and what else can you do but to want to mother anyone that knocks on your door
1: After Juana Barraza was rescued from her rapist, she proceeded to have several consensual relationships, but these men were also alcoholics and or abusive. She had four children in total, but when she was in her 20s, her oldest son was killed by a group of drunk men. He was just a kid, 12 years old. Some sources say that the drunk men used a baseball bat. Some say that Juana saw her son's murder happen. Surely there was no coming back emotionally from a trauma like this, but she had three other kids and they needed to eat, so Juana needed to make money. She had several streams of income. She did housework, she sold small items like socks in the street, and she wasn't above a little petty theft. Her neighbors at the time remembered her as pleasant. But one of her side hustles was a lot more intense than all the others. On weekends— Juana Barasa was a professional wrestler, a luchadora. She wore a full pink suit trimmed with silver. She wore a mask. She trained twice a week, lifting weights, running upstairs, doing sit-ups. Her wrestling name was La Dama del Silencio, the Lady of Silence. She chose it, she said, because she herself was very quiet, very isolated. The Lady of Silence earned 300 to 500 pesos per fight, which in 2000 was about $30 to $45, according to historicalstatistics.org. This was almost double what she could make during an entire week of street vending, so you can see the appeal from a purely financial perspective. But Juana also seemed to genuinely love wrestling. At age 35, she hurt her spine in a wrestling match, and after that, she sold popcorn at the matches, a moth drawn to the wrestling flame. In January of 2006, she was on TV for a few seconds, being interviewed about wrestling, and on camera, she beams. She looks so happy to be talking about it. The interviewer asks her what sort of fighter she is, in wrestling, in Lucha Libre. Fighters can be rudo or técnico. The rudos, literally rude wrestlers, are the bad guys who break the rules and play dirty, while the técnicos are the good guys who try to win in an honest fashion. It's evil versus good, a classic pairing. Anyway, the interviewer asks Juana Barraza what sort of fighter she is, and she answers, ruda de corazón, a bad guy, from the bottom of her heart. Now, wrestlers were probably saying this sort of thing to interviewers all over the country. But when Juana Barraza was caught on film, smiling and saying that she was one of the bad guys, she had no idea that this clip would take on a morbid significance just one week later. One of the reasons police kept looking for a man was because the killer was thought to be very, very strong. Strong enough to strangle another human being. So the police were looking for someone strong who also felt a deep resentment towards women, which is admittedly a bit of a cliché of the serial killer genre. Just look at Ed Kemper, Ed Gein, Ted Bundy, Jack the Ripper. It was as if the police never stopped to think that women can resent other women, too. Women can be wronged by other women and can go on to wrong other women. There's no rule in the battle of the sexes about who can hurt who. The world can be vicious and anyone can hurt anyone. Mothers can sell their daughters. Men can beat boys to death with baseball bats. Shadowy figures can knock on the doors of elderly women and say, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Before wrapping a pair of tights around their neck. On January 25th, 2006, a man was walking home, and when he got home, he glanced toward his landlady's place, which was right by his, and he saw that the door was open and someone, a tall woman, was racing out of the house. So he went over to see what was going on. Inside, he found his 82-year-old landlady, Ana Maria de los Reyes, lying on the floor, strangled, her face all bloody. The man raced outside and screamed police and two officers just happened to be driving by. So one of them sprang out of the car and started sprinting after the tall woman. The chase was tiny. The policeman ran only for about 32 feet before he reached Juanabarasa, who was very tall, who was wearing red that day who was holding two plastic bags with things inside them like a stethoscope and a list of elderly people who received benefits from CIVALE, the government program. She had made her way into Ana Maria's house by asking for a glass of water. The next day, newspaper headlines declared, in huge font, It is a woman! El mata viejitas was no more. It was la mata viejitas now. The old lady killer was herself a lady. As far as gender went, it was the serial killing equivalent of the call is coming from inside the house. Once Juana Barasa was arrested, people began the age-old dance of trying to explain how someone female could possibly do something so violent. One criminologist declared that Juana's aggressive nature was influenced by her menstrual cycle and the full moon, a reading made all the more ominous by the fact that Juana liked to wear red. A neuropsychologist scanned Juana's brain as she looked at various images and declared that Juana's brain didn't react very much. When Juana looked at a photo of a chair, she said that she felt a pleasant sensation because the chair looked like a place she could rest. And this seemed sinister to the neuropsychologist, who also noted that when Juana looked at an image of a woman, she felt nothing. More concretely, though, the neuropsychologist did note a, quote, alteration on Juana's frontal lobe, that part of the brain that seems so often affected in serial killers. When the identity of the old lady killer was still unknown, everyone had been looking for a charming, brilliant, Bundy-esque genius. But once Juana Barasa was arrested, a woman from a poor background with a side hustler as a wrestler, the narrative changed. Words like charming and brilliant were no longer on the table. Words like pathological were, and ugly. The coverage of her case was reminiscent of the coverage of Eileen Wernos's case, another abused woman turned killer who was painted as particularly monstrous and unwomanlike, more of a hideous non-human than a human who'd committed crimes. The media emphasized Juana's wrestler's body, tall and strong and well,
0: unwomanly, they thought. The Mataviejitas, the little old lady killer, was merged into the persona of La Dama del Silencio, the Lady of Silence. It is not Juana Barraza who is being made responsible. And this is a very subtle difference that I've been trying to make through the whole book, that there is a difference between who Barraza is and what she has done, and that she has not been made responsible for what she has done, but that she has been criminalized for who she is. And she is considered to be evil, perverse, ugly, mm-hmm. muscular, all the attributes that go be- that qualify more with a wrestler than with her as a woman. Back in the
1: town where she was born, Juana's relatives began claiming that they didn't know her. In police custody, Juana wept, saying, I hated old women because my mom mistreated me. She always cursed me. She gave me away to an old man, and I was abused. That is why I hated older women. I know it is not an excuse, that I do not deserve forgiveness from God or from anyone. ¶¶ Juana Barasa confessed to one murder, the murder of Ana Maria, the one that got her caught. Prosecutors put the number of her murders at 24 to 49. At the end of her trial, she was convicted of 16 murders and 12 robberies. She was given the longest sentence ever given to a murderer in Mexico—759 years, plus a fine of 2,086 days of minimum wage. On hearing her verdict, she said, May God forgive you and not forget me, and then said that she would appeal. And then she was sent to prison, where the woman who named herself the Lady of Silence fell, once again, silent. Unlike the cliché of the serial killer who craves notoriety, Juana Barasa never gave any interviews from prison. She kept her head down and started to cook. She sold tacos in the prison courtyard on Mondays and Wednesdays, unable, perhaps, to resist a good side hustle, and she was known for her delicious cochinita pibil, a spicy dish of slow-roasted pork. The Mexican government has a program called Lazos en Reclusión, Bonds in Confinement, intended to help inmates get to know each other, and under that program, Juana got married, In 2015, to a 74 year old man who was doing time for murder in the men's section of the prison. They were married on the same day as 48 other couples, and there was cake and music, and for Juana, a total lack of romance. Her wedding day was the first time she had ever seen her husband, and the moment she saw him, she realized that the whole thing was a big mistake. A year later, she asked for a divorce. She'd only seen her husband three times that entire year for a total of 40 minutes. Thinking about the marriage, in retrospect, made her laugh. In 2017, Juana did agree to an interview with Susana Vargas Cervantes, who we've been hearing from. Susana was so nervous while getting ready to see Juana that she accidentally dressed in navy blue, the same color that the inmates wore. Upon realizing her mistake on her way to the subway, Susana had to go back and change. When she arrived at the prison, she was taken through various halls and rooms until she was finally told where to go to meet Juana Barraza.
0: As I stood up to go and meet her, maybe she was told that she was going to come meet me at the principal's office or the main, the director's office. So we bump into each other. And when we bump... Literally. So... When I bump into her, I noticed how she was super tall, mm. really, really tall. And then I wondered if it was that even the newspapers were wrong because they said that it was one meter and 75 centimeters. So that will be like 20 centimeters more than I, or 15, mm. more than my height. But I thought that she was more than a um, head taller than me, maybe like two, mm. Like my head only got to her chest, not to her head. Wow! So I very was so tall. yeah. So then I thought, oh no, she must be taller than what I read in newspapers, or I'm shorter, but that cannot be. It. So that <laughs> right. immediately I was just like questioning everything, and <laughs> and then she she had a very muscular body, mm-hmm. but I think it was mostly her hide that call that caused the attention. It was clear as they talked who had the power. She had the power in our conversation and she knew she had the power and she was letting me know that she had it. Hmm. Like I was clearly scared because she told me, why are you scared? Oh. And I said, and I smiled and I said, I am, I'm not scared. Mm -hmm. And I knew there was a power dynamic going on and I was not interested in you know playing any psychological games and right. being like no i have i want to have the power i want to ask the questions because i truly was interested in what she had to say and to meet her and to see who she was
1: the first thing juana told susana was that she was frustrated because she was running into some trouble with a particular group of people in the prison
0: she started telling me the first thing, as you know from the book, from the introduction, the first thing she said is, I cannot work like this and just came back from my activity. My, like, what's your activity? My activity is the walking elderly women. My, like, what? That is, and do you choose that or like someone force you to do that? No, I chose it, but you know what they say to me? Who do you think you are? You're not the bones of me. I was like, okay, so let me just understand. You chose as your Friday activity to walk elderly women across the yard, but they don't obey you. And you're so nice (laughs) that you care about their health, so you have to make them walk. But you went to the director to tell her you cannot work like that because they rebel.
1: As the two women talked... Susana was struck by how much Juana mentioned her children and how wonderful they were. They didn't talk about the crimes. They didn't talk about the blood. They didn't talk all that much about the past. Juana mainly wanted to talk about being a mother. I can be whatever they want, but not a bad mother, she said. Juana, who'd been sold by her own mother at the age of 13, who'd been caught 35 years later running out of a house where she'd left an elderly woman dead on the floor, streaked with blood. It was as though the idea of being a bad mother, of doing something cruel to your child, was, in her mind, the worst thing one human could do to another. all for today, my sweet listeners. What do you think of Juana's story? What do you think of, oh, this age-old question of how, uh, you know, perpetrator can be a victim and so on and so forth? Tell me. Talk to me. Um, You can find me on Instagram at criminalbroadz. You can chat to me there. I'll put some photos of Juana there, as always. And you can also email me at criminalbroadz at gmail.com to tell me all your secrets and or to request broads for future episodes although no promises but you know you can nominate your stories you find the most compelling the fantastic new music you heard in this episode is from stereo dog productions and that's dan pearson and peter Mannheim. you can find a link to them in the show notes and i'll just leave you with the age-old lament of the podcasters If you like this show, would you please leave me a review on iTunes? And if you like this show and feel like you have $3 just weighing you down and you need to get rid of it, check out patreon.com slash criminal broads and drop it there. Okay, I love you all so much. The next episode is going to be incredibly depressing, so I'm prepping you now. And then the episode after that is going to be quote-unquote lighter. But keep in mind that this is still a true crime podcast. I love you so much. It's good to be back. Say hi to me on any of the aforementioned places. And I will see you in a week. Bye.
0: Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you.